right, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I was here many years ago. I don't know if any of y'all remember, but uh, I'd written a little yellow book called Praying the Effective for the Lost. Yeah. And I taught that material here. It may have been 12 or 15 years ago, I don't know. I was, and uh, I remember that pulpit. Now, I won't forget that pulpit, but, uh, but it's been a long time. So anyway, there are books back there on the table back there with a little donation bucket. Uh, if you have a money to money to give a donation, fine. If you don't take the books anyway, we want you to have the books. There are three of them. This book has been printed in 36 different languages, and it's gone all over the world. We've got about a million and a half in print. We got some other languages translated. It's on the internet. People can download them. And we got it in Mandarin Chinese, and uh, we get a lot of hits in China. But the church over there is kind of underground, so we haven't been able to find anybody that'll print it for us because if they print it and get caught, they could go to jail. Uh, this book is uh, called The Exceedingly Victorious Life. It deals with strongholds in Christians. There are two ways you can tell if you've got a stronghold, which is a mindset against the word and will of God. There are five major ways to get started, and then I'll tell you how to get free. So I'm going to read a quote out of this book tonight. But anyway, uh, it'll help you. A lot of people who have prison ministries use that book. Uh, it really helps the prisoners to get set free. And so uh, please, please get you some of them tonight. Uh, this book is called Life's Best Kept Secret. Uh, it deals with spirit, soul, and body. That's the way God made us. And basically how to get to the next level with God. So uh, there's some really interesting stuff in there that I think you'll find it helpful. So please, when you leave, take some books. And if we run out, I got some more in the car. So uh, there's a bunch of them on the table out there by the door. And so get them before you go. Now tonight I'm going to talk to you about life's greatest battle. Life's greatest battle. And uh, and I'm going to kind of tell you the difference between how God and Satan first wants us to do. God wants us to focus on, on spiritual things. He tells us in Colossians chapter 3 and verse 2, he says, set your affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And the word set your affection on is uh, uh, in the imperative mood, which means it's a command. The Lord's commanding us. He's not suggesting that we do this. He commands us to set our affection on things above. And the word uh, affection means to cherish the same view. So the Lord wants us to cherish the same views that he has, Okay. And, uh, and and that would help us. But the devil wants us to focus on the natural. Now, if you take notes, you want to jot down this scripture, 1 John 2, 16. It says, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of eyes, and pride of life, it's not of God, it's of the world. And so the lust of the flesh is a desire to have fun. The lust of the eyes is a desire to have a fortune, whatever you see. And the pride of life, of course, is a desire to have fame. So fun, fortune, fame. Now, folks, listen to me tonight. Every temptation, every sin, every stronghold comes from one of these three. There, there are no more. He says all that is in the world comes under these three categories. And so uh, uh, when you understand that, it'll, it'll help you uh, tremendously. And this is the way uh, the devil tempted Jesus. If you remember in Matthew 4, uh, the temptation of Jesus. Uh, the Bible says the first temptation was he had been fasting for 40 days. And so the devil says, turn these stones into bread and eat them. Well, that's the lust of the flesh. Uh, then he, he took them on a, a, a pick, pinnacle of the temple, uh, which was, I guess, many hundred feet in the air. I don't know how high it was, but the devil said, throw yourself down off of here. 
and the angel will catch you. They won't let you hurt yourself. You won't hit the ground. Well, he would become famous if he had done that, you know. Uh, and then he took him, the Bible says, on a very tall mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and the glory in a moment of time. He said, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give this to you because it's under my authority. And he was telling the truth. He was a liar, but he was telling the truth this time. And uh, that was that was for, for fortune. All the kingdoms of the world and the glory of them. So the, the Lord was tempted in only three things the devil has to work with, uh, lust of the flesh, lust of life, and pride of life. So that's what he wants to, uh, to work on us with, and, and he tries to do that uh, through the temptations that he gives us. Now, I want you to turn with me to the book of Galatians, if you have your Bible tonight. And I don't normally have people turn to very many scriptures because it's time consuming, but I'm going to share three passages with you that's so important. I want you to be able to see it in your own Bible. In Galatians chapter 5, beginning with verse 13, uh, Paul says, For brethren, we have been called unto liberty, only use not your liberty for an occasion of the flesh, but by love serve one another. Now, God's grace is greater than our sin, and so some people think we have a liberty to sin because that's true. He said, no, no. Matter of fact, God says in one place, God forbid, you know, that we, we sin because of God's grace. He says, for all the laws fulfilled in one word, even in this, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. But if you bind and devour one another, take heed that you be not consumed of one another. Now, verse 16 is crucial. Uh, verse 16 and verse 25, those are two crucial uh, 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 verses here. He says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And the word shall not in the Greek means under any circumstance whatsoever in this particular case. So he says, uh, Walk in the Spirit, and you shall not under any circumstance whatsoever fulfill the lust of the flesh. For the flesh lusteth against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to one to the other, so that you cannot do the things that you would. But if you be led of the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are manifest. And I'm not going to read them, but there are 17 of them. The works of the flesh are sins, okay? So he names 17 sins. But look at verse 21. Envies, murders, drunkenings, revelings, and such like. The word such like in the Greek means similar. So what he's saying is, folks, they're not just 17 sins. There are some others. And that such like says there are others. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, he, he names 25. Paul names 25 different works of the flesh or sins in Romans chapter 1. Uh, but look what he says here. Verse 21, Of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Now in verse 17, where he says, When the flesh and spirit lust against one another, which is the battle we're talking about tonight, he said, you cannot do any single thing, one single thing. The word for do there in the Greek is poeo. It just means to do something. But this word for do in the Greek is proso, which means to practice. It means a lifestyle. They which practice these things, those whose lifestyle deals with these things, shall not inherit the kingdom of God. That means that person is not saved. When you get born again, it doesn't mean you've never sinned, but it's no longer your lifestyle. Uh, you may slip up and lose your temper and say something you shouldn't, but you don't do that all the time, see? It's not your lifestyle anymore. And that's what he's talking about here. If you practice these things, you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he gives us a contrast here between uh, the lust of the flesh and the fruit of the Spirit. He said the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, temperance. Now watch this. 
Against such there is no law. So folks, there are not just nine fruit of the Spirit. That's probably all you've ever read about. Nine fruit of the Spirit. But this word such, it means similar. Uh, and so what he's saying is, uh, a meek distemperance against such there is no law. And so that implies there are more than nine fruit of the Spirit. You see, the fruit of the Spirit are just simply godly characteristics the Holy Spirit produces in our life as we walk with Him. Okay? And folks, there are certainly more than nine godly characteristics. Matter of fact, one day I was praying, I said, Lord, what are some other fruit of the Spirit? And I wrote down a 30 that the Lord gave me. And uh, and that's not including these, these nine here. And so there are many fruit of the Spirit, and I'll read a few of them to you in a little bit, uh, but uh, that's what he's saying. There are more than nine fruit of the Spirit. And then he says, They that are Christ have crucified the flesh with affections and lust. And then verse 25 is a crucial verse. He said, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Okay? Now, I want us to talk about the conflict. We're talking about life's greatest battle. And folks, life's greatest battle is the battle between the flesh and the Spirit. Okay? Now, let's talk about the conflict for a moment. First of all, it's a spiritual conflict. In verse 17, uh, the Bible says the flesh and spirit, they're contrary one to another. They're fighting against one another. And so what the devil tries to do is he tries to exploit our passions. And, uh, and he'll do that if, if, if we let him. Uh, so I want us to look now to, to Romans uh, chapter 8. If you have your Bible still open, just turn to Romans chapter 8. And I want to show you some wonderful truths here tonight out of Romans chapter 8. We'll begin with verse 1. Paul says, There is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And I want to just talk about this verse for a moment. Uh, there is therefore now no condemnation of them which are in Christ Jesus. Now the Greek word for in is spelled E-N, and it means a fixed position. In a fixed position of, of place, time, or state. It's a fixed position. So watch this. If you are in Christ Jesus, if you are in a fixed position in Christ Jesus, look what it says here. Who walk not after the flesh and the spirit. Uh, so if you're in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation for you. All right? If you are saved, if you, if you have a relationship with Christ, if the Holy Spirit lives within you, then you are in Christ Jesus. Uh, it's a fixed position. I like to explain it like this. Uh, I have a home in Louisiana, and I'm, and I'm there most of the time. Uh, but for the last six weeks, eight weeks, uh, I've been on the road most of the time. I've stayed in motel room. I've stayed in homes. Uh, I've stayed in an Airbnb in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, and uh, But that was not my permanent place. You understand what I'm saying? I spend one night in a motel, but that's not a fixed position for me. My fixed position is in Westlake, Louisiana. And so if you're in Christ Jesus, you're born again. Uh, but what I want you to notice here is the word walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. So I want you to notice how many times we find that contrast between flesh and spirit. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. And that's a really, really interesting uh, law, and I'm going to share it with you in a little bit about what it means. For what the law could not do, that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. Watch this, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Again, there's that contrast. For they that are after the flesh, here it is again, 
Do mind the things of the flesh. They that are after the spirit, the things of the spirit. Verse 6, what to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, it is not subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. So here we find this word in again. So those who are in the flesh, it means they are in a fixed position in the flesh. That means they're not saved. That's their permanent dwelling in the flesh. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be the spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. So here again in verse 9, you are not in the flesh. In other words, your fixed position is not in the flesh. But, he says, in the spirit. Your fixed position is in the spirit. It doesn't mean you never sin, but it's not your lifestyle anymore. Do you understand what I'm saying? Folks, this is crucial to understand that. If you are in Christ Jesus, you may mess up sometime and do something you should, but that's not your fixed position. It's like me staying in a motel one night while I'm on the road, but my fixed position is in Louisiana. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, so several times here he uses uh, the contrast between flesh and spirit. Now, I want you to understand flesh. If you take the word flesh and you drop the H and you spell flesh backwards, it's self. Flesh becomes self, S-E-L-F. So watch this, folks. Flesh and self are the same thing. So it's your flesh against your spirit. It's yourself against your against your against your spirit. And uh, the uh, the blue book talks quite a bit about uh, your soul. Uh, your soul is your mind and your will and your emotion, and uh, and that's yourself. That's who you are as a human being. Your mind, your will, and your emotion. And uh, and listen to me closely, folks. When you get born again, only your spirit is born again. You're composed of three parts. You're a trichotomy, just like God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. You are spirit, soul, and body. And when you get born again, only your spirit is born again. If I had time, I could show you a scripture where that's true. Uh, but watch this. If your body was born again, some of us, our hair wouldn't turn gray and wouldn't get arthritis and we wouldn't get what we can't do stuff we used to do. I'll be 75 years old into this month. Folks, there's a lot of stuff I can't do today that I used to do. I can't do it anymore. You know why? My, my body's not born again. It's dying. And if the Lord tells us coming, everyone in this room is going to die a physical death. Uh, and your body's going to go back to the dust of the earth because your body's not born again. Now, we're going to have a new body someday, but not right now. And neither is your soul born again. Your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotion. Folks, if your soul was born again, you'd never have another bad thought because your mind would be born again. If your soul was born again, you'd never have a, another negative emotion because your soul is your mind, your will, and your emotions. And if your soul was born again, you'd never make a bad decision. I don't know about you folks, but I've made some bad decisions since I've been born again. Anybody here ever done made a bad decision after you got saved? You know what that means? Your soul wasn't born again. If it was, it wouldn't do that. Only your spirit is born again. That's crucial uh, to understand. And so yourself and your flesh is the same thing. It's your soul. It's who you are as a human person. All right? And so there's a battle going on. So let's look at this real quickly. Back in verse 1, he talks about walking, either in the flesh or in the spirit. 
And then in verse four, the same thing. Then in verse five, he talks either you're after the flesh or after the spirit. Are you doing things according to the word in the Greek uh, act is, is keta? It means according to. So you're either you're either doing things according to the flesh or what self wants to do, or you're doing things according to the spirit, what the spirit wants to do. And then he comes to uh, he comes to verse eight, uh, and he says uh, he says uh, so then they that they're in in the flesh cannot please God. And so I've already explained to you this word in means a fixed position. So if you are in the fixed position where self is always in charge, you're not born again. You have to be born again. Okay? Now, let's look at verse 6. We kind of skipped it, but it's sandwiched between these other other verses talking about flesh and spirit. Okay? Now, one day I was driving down the highway, and uh, and I was praying about verse 6. And I'm saying, Lord, help me to understand this a little bit better. And so I'm driving down the highway, and I'm praying, and meditating on, on Romans 8, 6. And I said, Lord, help me understand carnally minded, spiritually minded. Folk, I'm in the car by myself. And the Holy Spirit speaks to my spirit and says, how do 3D glasses work? <laughs> I said out loud, I have no idea. Because I didn't know how 3D glasses work. How many of y'all know how 3D glasses work? Anybody? I've asked hundreds of people. I've had just a few hands go up. Not very many at all. Well, now, when I was younger and went to a 3D movie, they would give us a pair of, of cardboard glasses. The cardboard was white. Anybody ever been to a movie when you got that? All right, some of y'all getting toward my age. One lens was red, and the other lens was either green or blue. Y'all remember that? So when I got home, I asked my son, Andy. He was working for our ministry at the time. I said, Andy, uh, Find out how 3D glasses work for me. Because the Holy Spirit asked me that question, how do 3D glasses work? Well, he Googled it. Y'all can do that when you get home. Don't do it now, but when you get home, you can do it. But here's the way it works. If you go to a movie, and it's a 3D movie, they've got two projectors. One is projecting a picture in red rays. The other is projecting a, a picture in either blue or green rays, depending on what color your glasses is. Now, folks, here's something scientists have discovered. Your eye only sees three colors. Guess what they are? Red, green, and blue. And not very many women have it, but a lot of men have what we call color blindness. They can't distinguish between red and green. But your brain somehow converts those colors in all the multicolors that you can see. But scientists say you only pick up those three colors, so your brain converts it into into the colors they are. Uh, but but here's what happens: you got two projectors projecting two different images, and either red and green or red and blue, and you've got on the glasses, and you got a red lens and a blue lens or a green lens, depending on what you know they're projecting in, and you can see the movie, and it all melts together, and you can understand it. But if you don't wear the glasses, it's like a jumble mess. You can't understand it. You can't see it. You can't differentiate, differentiate between what's going on. So when I understood how 3D glasses work, I understood carnally minded, spiritually minded. You see, folks, God has given us a pair of, of uh, 3D glasses we wear all the time. One lens is a faith lens. And you can see the spiritual realm. One lens is what I call the sense lens. We have five senses. Seeing, smelling, tasting, feeling, and so forth. Okay? 
So God's given us five senses to appropriate our physical world. Because you see, folks, we live in two worlds simultaneously. We live in a physical world, and it gives us five senses to appropriate that physical world. But folks, we also live in a spiritual world. And it's the eye of faith that's able to see the spiritual realm. Okay? Now listen to me closely. If you can see clearly the spiritual realm through the eye of faith, the lens of faith, you never worry or fret about anything again because you'd see all, God's already got it taken care of. I'll tell you a couple of quick stories. Elisha uh, was the, the king of Syria, hated him because every time he sent his army to do something, Elisha would tell the king of Israel where he was going to be. God just revealed it to him. And uh, so. The king of Syria had a meeting with his men and said, somebody's betraying us. Who's doing it? And one of the men said, it's not us. It's, it's Elisha. It's that prophet in Israel. He said, he knows everything. He said, he knows what you do in your bedroom. I mean, Elisha knew everything that was going on. And the king said, we're going to get that guy then. So anybody know where he is? One guy said, yeah, he's in Dothan. Not Alabama, but Israel. And, and, and the king of Syria sent his army, huge, vast army and surrounded Dothan and early that morning Elisha's servant got up and saw that great army and he said, the last master what are we going to do? And Elisha said, son, there's more with us than there are with them. And then he prayed, he said, Lord, open his eyes so he can see. And the Bible says that God opens the young man's eyes and he saw a mountain full of horses and chariots of fire. And see, Elisha, with the eyes of faith, he could see in the spiritual realm, he saw the horses and chariots of fire. And then he just spoke the word and folk, the entire Syrian army was blinded and he marched into his king. Captured the whole army, didn't fire shot. Why? Because he could see the spiritual realm. If you could see the spiritual realm, folks, you wouldn't worry about anything because God got it covered. You understand what I'm saying? And so we see things either with the eye of faith, the spiritual realm, or we're concentrating on the sense lens and we see what's happening around us physically and we don't connect it to the spiritual realm and we get all frustrated because not everything works out like it ought to in, in the physical realm, does it? But that's what we're looking at, you see. That's what we're concentrating on. One more uh, illustration real quickly. Uh, Peter and the disciples were in a boat on the Sea of Galilee and Jesus was not in the boat with them and a storm came up and they say on the Sea of Galilee a storm could come up quickly and it could be a violent storm and this was a violent storm. Uh, and they looked out into the storm and walking on the water was Jesus. They thought it was apparition. They were afraid. And the Lord said, don't be afraid, it's me. And Peter said, Lord, if that's really you, let me come to you. And Jesus spoke one word to Peter. He said, come. Now I believe if Andrew had stepped out of the boat, he'd probably sunk because... He was only talking to Peter. Peter's one that said, let me come to you. He said, come. And in the Bible, that's called a rhema. That's a word that God speaks to you. So Peter steps out of the boat and he starts walking, walking toward Jesus. But the water, the waves are still high. The wind still boisterous. It's blowing hard. And Peter reverted to his senses. What he saw, the waves high, what he felt, the wind blowing, and he began to sink. When he got his eyes off of Jesus and looked at the circumstances and felt his circumstances, he reverted to his senses instead of faith. I mean, Peter knew he couldn't walk on the water. He'd been a fisherman all of his life. But when Jesus said, come, he stepped out and started walking on the water. That was a spiritual thing. But when he got his eyes on the situation, 
the circumstances, he began to sing. He reverted to his senses. And he, he began to sing. He had to cry for the Lord to save him. So that's the way it works. So we're either carnally minded or spiritually minded. If you're carnally minded, it means you're concentrating on the physical things of this world. If you're spiritually minded, you're concentrating on the spiritual things of this world. And so that, that makes a difference. Now here's the third, uh, second thing about this fight. Uh, it's not only spiritual, it's continual. The word lusteth in verse 17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. It's in present tense. It means continually. So there's a continual battle going on. Uh, and it means to, lusteth means to long for with passion. And, uh, and so it's a continual battle. I'm telling you, I'm talking to you tonight about life's greatest battle, and it, folk, it never ends. We'll have a battle between flesh and spirit every day until we die. Uh, and we need to get just used to seeing the spiritual side and concentrating on the spiritual side and, and, and winning. Uh, but a lot of folk have trouble doing that. Now, I want to read you a, uh, a quote out of the Brown book, and uh, I, want you to, to, I want you to understand what we're talking about here. Uh, how that this battle is continual, okay? Now, a law is a principle expressing the normal way something works. For example, gravity is a force that draws objects to the water the center of the earth. It is called the law of gravity because it works the same way all the time. It doesn't matter how spiritual you are. If you get up on this roof and fall off, you're going to probably get hurt. Just because your spiritual won't keep you from getting hurt, the law of gravity takes over when you get off the roof. So the question for us is, what is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, and uh, and how does it free us from the law of sin and death? And that's what he talked about in verse 2 of, of Romans 8, uh, the law of, of sin and death, uh, and, and the law of the spirit of life. So how does that work? Well, it says, just as the law of gravity is a continual force drawing objects toward the center of the earth, the law of sin is a never-ending force drawing each of us to our own center, which is self. <coughs> okay? So, by its very definition and nature, self operates independently of God. Therefore, self or flesh is not even subject to the law of God, neither indeed can be. Rather, self is controlled by the law of sin. So only when self operating under the law of sin, which produces death, ceases all activity can the Holy Spirit take over and deliver us from that law. Uh, just as the law of aerodynamics, listen to me closely, just as the law of aerodynamics overcomes the law of gravity, so the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus overcomes the law of sin and death. But here is the salient point. In order for us personally to get victory, over the law of gravity, we must be in the plane while it's operating under the law of aerodynamics. If we could somehow get out of the plane while it's in the air, the law of gravity would immediately take over and we would plummet to the earth. So we only overcome the law of gravity when we're in the plane, and the plane overcomes law of gravity through the law of aerodynamics, okay? The law of gravity never ceases to operate. It is still working while the plane is in the air, but it cannot compete with the law of aerodynamics. Neither can the law of sin and death compete with the higher law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. But in order for that higher law to work for us, we must be walked in the spirit. 
Since the law of sin and death never ceases to operate, the very moment we stop walking in the Spirit, it begins to activate in our life and we fail. That doesn't mean we continue to fail, but we are we fail when we're when we're not walking in the Spirit. The law of sin and death works only in self or flesh, while the law of the Spirit of life works only in Christ Jesus. We determine which is operating in us when we choose either to be independent, that means trust in self, or dependent on Christ. Now, I am about to share with you a revolutionary, life-changing statement. Listen to me closely. Satan wants us to try to stop sinning. Satan wants us to resist temptation. Satan wants us to try to be good. But listen to this, folks. All the effort comes from us, our flesh. And Jesus himself said, the flesh profits nothing. Since self is impregnated with the law of sin and death, all that self can produce, no matter how wonderful it seems, is only death. So the devil wants us to try to do the right thing. <laughs> but if we do it, it's flesh doing it. It's self doing it. And the Lord said the flesh cannot produce anything this good. Okay? And so, uh, we, need, we need to learn how to walk in the Spirit and stay in the Spirit. Now, here's the third thing about this, this uh, battle. It's personal. Verse 17 says you cannot do. And so that's personal. None of us can. We can do what God wants us to do uh, it, with, uh, when we walk in the flesh. The fourth thing about this battle is, folk, it's relational. I don't have time to talk about that tonight, but uh, at least uh, seven or eight times in these verses we read, uh, he talks about dividing one another, biting one another, envying one another, jealous of one another. And so when we have relational problems, I'm writing another book right now. I've got about a chapter and a half left to finish on it, on the power of relationships. And hopefully it'll be out before the end of this year. And uh, and folk need the book. It'll, it'll really set some people free. It'll help some people. Because folk, our relationships are very, very powerful. And, uh, and they can keep us from being close to God and keep us from winning souls. A whole lot of things relations can do when, when they get messed up. So I want you to look now at the contrast between the flesh and the spirit. Uh, the works of the flesh, verses 19 through 21. Again, I've already mentioned, uh, he names 17 works of the flesh or sins. Paul names 25 in Romans chapter 1, so there's a bunch of them. Now here's what the Bible says about these works of the flesh. They're manifest. That means they're visibly obvious. You can tell. You can see them. And then secondly, they, they are eternally destructive because he said they, those who do this, those who practice these kinds of things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. So they're in, eternally destructive. But then he contrasts that with the fruit of the Spirit. Now, folks, fruit is also evident. If you've got a fruit tree and the fruit comes on and starts getting ripe, you can see it. You can see it from the road. Years ago, I got drafted. They sent me to Key West, Florida for a while. And my wife and I drove down there, and uh, but we, we seemed like we passed mile after mile after mile of orange trees. And you know how we knew they were orange trees? They had oranges hanging all over them. They're visible. You can see them. And they're powerful. He says in verse 23, against such, these godly characteristics called fruit of the Spirit, against such there is no law. And so, uh, such implies there are more than nine. So let me just name a few real quickly. 
Uh, here's some that God gave me, uh, and it's not it's not a complete list. It's just a few: sympathy, wisdom, reverence, favor, generosity, modesty, purity, godliness, contentment, submission, compassion, zeal, humility, mercy, unity. Folk, all of these are godly characteristics the Holy Spirit produces us, and that's when we walk with it. They're not just nine, there's a bunch of them. And so, uh, and they should be visible in our lives. They should be apparent in our lives. People who meet us and talk with us and know us should be able to sense those godly characteristics in our lives. Folk, you ought to be embarrassed if anybody ever asks you, are you a Christian? It should be obvious. Folks should be able to see that in you. That you love the Lord, you love people, and, and, and you've got these characteristics that are good. Now let's talk about the conquest real quickly. Verse 16, folks, this is the crucial verse. Verse 16, he says, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not, under any circumstance whatsoever, fulfill the lust of the flesh. Now, folks, that's pretty strong. Walk in the Spirit. Now, the Greek word here for walk is peripateo. It means to tread all around. And so I want to use an umbrella tonight uh, to, uh, to illustrate this truth. This is not my umbrella, so I'll probably get it open here. Anybody know how to operate an umbrella? <laughs> huh? Oh, there's a button there. I could find the button. All right, I want you to notice this. Now, an umbrella is... Uh, designed primarily to keep the rain off of you when it's raining. Am I right? So if it's raining outside and we've got an umbrella, we can just walk wherever we want to and and the rain won't hit us and we won't get wet. That's what that word walk means in verse 16. It means to tread all around. You can just walk wherever you want to go. So as long as you're under the umbrella, you won't get wet. Okay? You'll be all right. Now then, I want you to... Uh, I want you to just use your imagination a little bit and, and look at this umbrella as the realm of the Spirit, okay? Because that's what he's talking about here. If you walk in the realm of the Spirit, you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. So let's call this the realm of the Spirit. We could call this umbrella the realm of the dry because underneath here is dry. If it's raining outside, and we could call it the realm of the dry. So you want to go to Walmart one day and, and ask one of the clerks, uh, say, what do you have to keep the realm of the drive, you know? I want to buy me one. <laughs> kind of blow their mind. <laughs> but that's what it is. It's the realm of the drive. It's an umbrella. But let's let it represent the realm of the spirit. So watch this. The Bible says here in this verse that we can just tread all around. We can go anywhere we want to as long as we are in the realm of the spirit. But folks, watch this. Outside the realm of the spirit is the devil's territory. Now he can't get to us as long as we're in here. The only way he can get to us, folks, is if he can tempt us out of the realm of the spirit. Do you understand what I'm saying? This is his territory out here. So you don't want to get into his territory because the Bible says he's like a he's like a lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. Uh, he's that old serpent. He's waiting for you to get out from under the realm of the spirit so he can bite you. He wants to destroy you. He comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's all he knows how to do. And so he wants you He wants you to do that. So this is the realm of the spirit, but outside the realm of the spirit is the devil territory. But he can't get in here to get to you. Okay? Now, 
I want you to turn with me now to the book of James, chapter 1. I want to show you something that's really important. In James chapter 1, there's only one way the devil can get us out of the realm of the Spirit, and that's by tempting us out. But watch what James says here. In James chapter 1, look at verse 13. James says, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted with God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth any man. But look at verse 14. Every man, every man, every man is tempted when he's gone away of what? His own lust and enticed. Then when lust hath conceived, it brings forth sin. Sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So, folks, watch this. The devil cannot tempt you with something unless that something is already in your heart. See, that's what he says. Every man is tempted when he's gone away of his own lust, that desire, whatever it may be. It may be for money. It may be for fame. It may be for something else. But whatever it is, it's already in your heart. The seed is there. And that's the only way the devil can tempt you. You fishermen, when you go fishing, you're bass fishing, you're, fish, you're fishing with bait that bass like to eat, or you're using an artificial lure that looks like a bait the bass like to eat. If you have something out there that they don't want to eat, they'll never strike you up. You see? That desire for particular kinds of food is already in the bass's heart. And when you throw it out there, he'll grab it if he can. But if it's something he doesn't, doesn't care about, doesn't maybe know anything about, he's not going to hit it. You understand what I'm saying? So only if the seed of the particular problem is in, in your heart can the devil tempt you out. Now, I want to uh, I want to show you an illustration. Come up here, brother, and help me. What's your name? Ron. Ron. Okay, Ron. Uh, I've got a... A piece of a magnet here. I want you to hold that in your hand, just out like that, where people, people can see it. Now I've got a I've got a piece of wood here, and uh, you see, there's nothing in a piece of wood that's attracted to a magnet. I can put that wood all over that thing and won't do anything. So unless there is something inside this piece of wood that attracts this magnet, it'll never do anything with it. But I want you to watch this. Look at this. Watch this. <laughs> Do you know why that piece of wood picked up that magnet? Because it's a magnet just like this inside this piece of wood. There's not one on this end. Don't touch it. But on this end, there's a magnet just like this. It'll pick that magnet up. You see, folks, this is illustration. I want you to see this. Go ahead and step here, Ron, for me, and I'm going to mm -hmm. keep using you. Uh, when you get free labor, you use them as much as you can. You know what I mean? Sorry, I'm retired. <laughs> so watch this, folks. Does this make sense to you? The only reason this piece of wood would pick up this magnet because there's something just like it inside. You can't see it, but it's in there. And so, only if the seed of the lust, whatever it might be, is in your heart. Can the devil tempt you outside the will of God? 
And that's why you need to get the Brown book and study it because strongholds would be a sin that's entrenched in your mind. And and uh, sometimes you don't even know it's there. Matter of fact, one chapter is called Satan's Secret Weapon because you can have a stronghold and not know you have it. And that's how he keeps you defeated. And you get defeated in the same area over and over and over again. Matter of fact, that's one of the two ways you can tell you got a stronghold. If you keep being defeated in the same area over and over again, you got a stronghold. And so what will happen is the devil will tempt you with that that he knows you, you've got a problem with. And bam, you end up going outside the will of God. And I'm going to show you how that works here in just a minute. Uh, again with the umbrella. Now then, uh, I want you to look at verse 25. Now verse 16 said, Paul said, This I say then, walk in the Spirit, peripateo, walk all around in the realm of the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. But look at verse 25. He says, If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. In other words, if we live in the spiritual realm, let us also walk. Now, the word for walk in Greek, this particular word means to walk in step with it is an entirely different Greek word. It means to walk in step with it. It's a military term. In the military, you learn to walk in step. Now, I got drafted on March 13, 1969. I went to Fort Polk, Louisiana uh, for basic training and then and prior for going to Vietnam. But folks, we had to learn to walk in step, which I don't understand. The government does, does a lot of stuff that most of us don't understand. But listen, we were training to go to Vietnam. In Vietnam, you don't want to walk in step. You want to hide behind a tree. You want to get down in a rice bed somewhere though, where they can't see you. You walk in step, they'll shoot a bunch of you at one time. You don't want to do that. But that's the way we were trained. We had to learn to walk in step. Okay? So what does that mean here? If we live in the Spirit, if we live around the Spirit, let us walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So, Brother Ron, I want you to I want you to take it on, Bella, now. Now, this is the realm of the Spirit. And so he talks about walk in step with, he's talking about walk in step with the Holy Spirit. So Brother Ron is going to represent the Holy Spirit tonight. This is the realm of the Spirit. Brother Ron's represent the, the uh, Holy Spirit. So watch this. If I walk in step with the Holy Spirit, which is tonight's going to be Brother Ron, watch this. Go ahead, Brother Ron, start walking. If I'm going to walk in step with him, what have I got to do? Huh? I got to walk right beside him, haven't I? Got to walk right beside him. If he turns and goes the other direction, what do I do? I got to turn and go the other direction, okay? If I don't, I'm going to get left behind. Now, let's go back to the to the lust in your heart. You remember David was a man after God's own heart. And in the New Testament, that tells, tells us what that means. Folks, David committed adultery and murder and messed up his family. He lost four of his kids over that. It destroyed his family. Psalm 51 is his prayer to God after he did that. But watch this, folks. David was a man after God's own heart. And yet one day he watched a woman take a bath. She was a beautiful woman. He sent for her, got her pregnant. And then he called for her husband. Her husband's name was Uriah. Uh, he was one of his officers in his army. And he sent for him and he came home to the war. And David tried to send him home, but he wouldn't go home. He had too much integrity. He said, I can't go home and be with my wife if my men are out there on the battlefield dying and fighting. I can't do that. So he wouldn't go home to his wife. 
You see, she was pregnant with David's baby, and he, she wanted David wanted him to go home and sleep with his wife. So when she had a baby, everybody think it was his baby instead of David's, but he wouldn't go home. So David wrote a letter, sealed it up, gave it to him, said, "Take this to Joab. He was a general." And then the letter told Joab, 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 make sure you rise up in the thick of the battle and he gets killed. And sure enough, he did. And after Uriah got killed, David married Bathsheba. He committed adultery and murder. But he was still called a man after God's own heart because he obeyed. He did what God God said. He's going to do what I tell him to do. He did it, but he slipped into sin. You know why, folks? He had lust in his heart. He had lust in his heart. So watch this. Let's swap sides. You get on this side of me, right? And and we're gonna walk this way. We're gonna walk this way because this chair's on our way right here. Uh -huh. But let's turn toward this wall and we're gonna walk. Watch this. I'm walking in step with the Holy Spirit. But uh, let's just say I've got the same problem with David. I don't just say I did. I had a lust in my heart. And so the devil puts a beautiful young lady out here in a tiny, tiny two-piece bikini. He'll never tempt you with a hundred-year-old woman with two strings of hair and no teeth. <laughs> he won't. That's not tempting. So watch this. I'm walking in step with the Holy Spirit. He puts this beautiful woman, wonderful figure, two-piece bikini, out there, and I I stop and look, and that's what David did. The Bible said it was when kings should be at war. He wasn't worried. He was where he shouldn't have been. And he saw Bathsheba taking a bath, and he sent for her. And so watch this, folks. When I stopped to look because there was lust in my heart, guess what happened? The Holy Spirit moved on. And now where am I? I'm in the devil's territory. Now, folks, I didn't lose my salvation. In Psalm 51, when David prays, he said, Lord, restore to me the joy of my salvation. He lost his joy. He didn't feel too good about being saved, but he didn't lose his salvation. But guess what, folks? When you're in the devil's territory, he'll beat up on you. Well, he beat up on David so bad, David lost four of his kids as a result. Sometimes you don't get beat up so bad as your family does. And if you're a real parent, that hurts you probably more than most anything else anyway. Do you understand what I'm saying? If the lust for that particular thing is in your heart, that's what the devil tempts you with. And when you stop to look, the Holy Spirit's moving on, and you just got left behind, and you're in the devil's territory. And folks, there are a lot of Christians not getting beat up by the devil because they did this very thing. Do you understand what I'm saying? Does this make sense to you? You see, folks, we've got a battle going on every single day. Life's greatest battle is between the flesh and the spirit. And Paul says if we walk in the spirit and we walk in step with the Holy Spirit, we got to come. The devil can't get there where we are. The only way he can get to us is if we get out from under the realm of the spirit. We get out of step with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way the devil can get to us. And so he tempts us with whatever it is in the heart. If he can find out what it is, he'll tempt us. He used all three temptations on Jesus. Fun, fortune, fame. And Jesus didn't do it. Matter of fact, he says, the prince of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. Folks, there was nothing in Jesus' life 
let the devil put a hook in and draw him out. Not a thing. And that's the way it needs to be with us. Okay, brother, thanks. <coughs> yes, sir. I like cheap labor. <laughs> now, walking in the step of the Spirit it means another thing. Let me tell you what it means. It means obeying what He says you, tells you to do. Now, in the New Testament, there are two words for word. One is logos. That's the written word, the Bible you have in your lap tonight. But it's also God in Jesus. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the Word. The Word is with God. The Word was God. And all three times, it's Logos. John 1, 14, the Word, Logos, was made flesh and dwelt among us. That's Jesus. So the Logos is God and Jesus. And all that God thinks, all that God is, all that God says, all that God does, the Logos is God and the written word. Okay? But there's another word for word, and it's rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Now, the rhema is a word that God speaks to you. Now, the way you can tell the difference between logos and rhema is, logos is general information, or revelation, however you want to say it. Rhema is personal information or revelation. For example, the Bible tells us the Great Commission we're to go all into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. But folks, that doesn't mean every single one of us is supposed to go tell everybody in the world about Jesus. That's a logistical impossibility. We got about 8 billion people in the world. There's no way everyone in this room tonight could go to every person in the world and tell those people about Jesus. There's no way. So you know what God does? He calls missionaries to go to different countries. And he says, I want you to go to India. I want you to go to Brazil. I want you to go uh, to Russia. And he calls different people to go to different places. He did that with the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted to go to Bithynia, but he said the Holy Spirit stopped me. wouldn't let me go. He wanted to go somewhere else. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go. And then finally he said, I saw a man from Macedonia. He said, come over and help us. And I realized that's where God wanted to go. Now, that doesn't mean he didn't want people in Bithynia to hear the gospel but it wasn't the right time. God wanted him to go to Macedonia uh, at that particular time. So that's the way God does it. That's the way he gets the gospel out to all the different countries and people groups. He sends missionaries and says, here's where I want you to go. And they go. Okay. Now that's a rhema. General, general information, Logos, he wants the gospel to preach to every person, but we can't all preach the gospel to every person. So he chooses people. You understand what I'm saying? He chooses people to go to different places to tell different people about Jesus. Okay? Now, in uh, the Bible tells us that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And the word for word there is rhema. So we are to live on the rhemas that God speaks to us. That means, folks, if you don't hear from God, you can't live like God wants you to live. He says we should not live by bread alone. That means physical life, but by every rhema that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So God tells us what to do. Remember, Peter's on the housetop praying, and the Lord says, uh, three men are looking for you. Go with them, doubting nothing. He climbs down, and they're from the house of, of Cornelius, uh, and uh, he goes to Cornelius. He's a, he's a Gentile. And Peter says, I'm not supposed to go in the house of a Gentile. He was a Jew. The Holy Spirit said, go and doubt, doubting nothing. And folks, he went to Cornelius. Cornelius has been praying, won't know how to get saved. And so 
the Holy Spirit, uh, an angel came and said, send for Peter, you'll tell you what to do. And Peter got there and started talking about Jesus. And folks, the Bible says the Holy Spirit fell upon him and, and Cornelius' family got saved before Peter quit preaching. He didn't even give an invitation. Everybody got saved. Now that's good preaching there, bro, folks. I'll tell you, I'd like to see that happen a lot. But see, that was a rhema. God told Peter to go. Philip had a thriving revival going on and God says, leave this revival and go out in the middle of the desert. And he didn't tell him why he wanted to go out there. He, so Peter, I mean, Philip goes out in the middle of the desert. He gets out there. When he gets in the, out in the desert, the Holy Spirit said, you see that chariot over there? Go join yourself to it. And he was an Ethiopian eunuch who had come to Jerusalem looking for God, but nobody helped him find God. So, But he had a copy of the book of Isaiah and he was reading it. And the place he was reading about Jesus dying for our sins. And so Philip climbed up in this man's chariot and he said, do you understand what you're reading? He said, how can I except some man should guide me? And Peter took the passage and preached to him Jesus and a man got saved and they found some water and he got baptized out in the middle of the desert. And then the Bible says that God caught, caught Peter away and he found he ended up in Azotus and Ethiopian unit went on back to Ethiopia. See, that was, that was two ramas. God told Philip, go out in the middle of the desert. Then he told him, go join yourself to share. That's a rhema. That is a personal word for a particular person at a particular time. And that's the difference between rhema and, and logos. <coughs> but we are to live by the rhemas that God lived, gives us. God, in the blue book, I talk quite a bit about rhemas because they're important. Uh, some are life-changing and, and you live on rusty life. God told Abraham, you're going to be the father of a multitude. And sure enough, he, he became a father of a multitude. Uh, that was a rhema. He lived on it for the rest of his life. Several years ago, God spoke to me one day and he said, you'll, rank, you'll reap if you don't faint. And folks, for the next two years, I went through living hell. Satan assaulted me, assaulted my family, assaulted the church I was pastoring. I mean, I got so weary, I just wanted to quit the ministry. Not just quit pastoring that church, just quit the ministry. And I was so worn out, I was just so worn down. I was so discouraged. The devil just kept beating up on me, beating up on me, beating up on me. Finally, I told my wife one day, I said, I've got to have a break. I've got to get away from here. So we drove to the Ritter Louisiana, about 40 miles from where I live, just to spend a night in the motel and just get away from everything. And we couldn't even find an empty motel room. <laughs> so we drove on, drove on down to Fort Polk. And we finally, uh, Leesville, that's where Fort Polk is. And we finally found a motel with a room in it. And we went, went in and spent the night. And at four o'clock the next morning, God woke me up and I got up and got dressed, slipped out of the room. My wife didn't even know I was gone. I went down and got in my car and just started driving around in the countryside around Leesville. And folks, I can't explain it to you. I don't know what happened, but in that wee hours of the morning, out in the countryside of Leesville, Louisiana, God took away everything that was bothering me, gave me peace of heart. And I went back to the church encouraged and, and able to keep doing what God wanted me to do. But for two years, folk, the devil assaulted me. And after two years, I wrote this yellow book. And I guess the devil knew that was coming. It's gone all over the world. The yellow book focus in, in 36 different languages. We had about a, over a million and a half. I don't know how many we had made printed. Now I lost count. A million and a half printed. We get wonderful we get wonderful testimonies all the time. I had a man in Texas call me the first part of this year, he talked to my wife, didn't talk to me, and he wanted a hundred books for his church. 
and I recognized his name because I had been with him in a First Baptist Church several years before. And I called him back. I said, listen, I'll just bring you books to you uh, on about 30 miles from where I live. So I took them to him, and uh, we had lunch together. He said, let me tell you this story. I had never heard this story. And I just found out the first part of this year. He said, when I went to First Baptist Church of Newton, Texas, he said, I looked at our records, and the most the church had ever baptized in one year was 14. He said, after you came and taught the material at our church, he said, that year I baptized 63 people. He said, the next year I baptized 84 people. He said, the next year I baptized 72 people. Folks, he baptized 219 people in three years after I taught the material, and did the most ever baptized in one year was 14. We get stuff like that all the time. A lady in California ordered some books in January, and she said, our goal is to see 300 people get saved this year. She had a prayer group. And she uh, emailed us back about six weeks later, in the middle of February. This was in January. She emailed us back in the middle of February, and she said, uh, we've already won 266 people. <laughs> I was here in a church in Kentucky some time ago. I talked to some material. There was a lady there from another church that heard me speak. She got some yellow books, went back to her church, and she said, we've got to do this. And she said, we baptized 200 people in 18 months. And I hadn't even been to that church. They just took the book and used it. Book is incredible. We have incredible stories coming in all the time. It's incredible. And so here's what happened. God gave me a rhema. You'll reap if you don't faint. And folks, every time I got so weary I couldn't go on, I said, God, I'm not quitting. You promised me I'd reap if I didn't faint. And boy, I concentrated on not fainting. I concentrated on not quitting. And he gave me grace. And after that two years of continual assault from Satan, now I'm seeing the harvest come in. It's a marvelous thing. It's a marvelous thing. So a rhema is a word that God speaks to you in your situation. And here's your great verse that goes with it. Luke 137. If you have an English Bible like King James, it says, with God, nothing should be impossible. So here's what the Greek says. The Greek says, with God, no rhema is void of power. When God gives you a rhema, he gives you a word. It's got the power in it to accomplish what he said he wanted to do. And so you obey the rhemas. That's walking in the Spirit, in step with the Spirit, obeying the rhemas that God gives you. And so pray and ask the Lord to show you what He wants you to do, folks, and He'll show you what He wants He wants you to do. And it's a wonderful, wonderful life. You'll have more joy. You'll be doing what God wants you to do. You'll see results, and you'll just be excited all the time. I'm, I'm excited just about all the time. It's just I'm just, I'm having the time of my life. I'll be 75 years old, and uh, what is today? What is today? 18. 12 days. In 12 days, I'll be 75. I'm still going strong. <laughs> I've been home about 10 days in the last eight weeks. <laughs> Having time in my life. Because I'm God's doing stuff. He's doing stuff. He's doing stuff. It's a marvelous thing. Father, I love you. I thank you for being so good to us. Lord, thank you for this opportunity to speak to Bellevue. And I pray you'll touch every heart. Don't let us leave like we came tonight, Father. Uh, just I pray you change our lives. Help us to understand about this war we're in continuously, spiritual war, flesh against the spirit. And Lord, the only way we can win is by walking in step with your Holy Spirit. Help us to do that. Help us to do that. 
Lord, use us all for your glory, that Christ will be magnified in our lives. Father, I pray the folk, folk will take books home with them tonight, read the books, study the books, use the books, and see incredible results in people getting saved and getting strongholds out of their own lives, getting to the next level with you uh, to walk with you and be what you want them to be. I pray, Father, you'll do it. Bless the folk here. I beg you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.